This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree. I'm Bill Ayers, and with the help of comrades Pallas Shaw, Roxana Espos, Light Ailee, and Bernadine Dorn, we're broadcasting in the spirit and in the memory of our comrade Malik Alim. That was the singer, songwriter, and freedom fighter Tom Morello with Let Freedom Ring, our podcast's hopeful theme song. Tom's generosity is an inspiration. He shows up whenever people are coming together under the banner of freedom in search of peace and justice. We're broadcasting from the so-called Chicagoland area of Illinois, a contradiction, a conundrum, a crime scene. Chicago is a place of outsized and crazy complexity, a city raised on a foundation of genocide, colonial ambition, and stolen land, built up by the hands of exploited immigrant workers and African-ancestored people, escaping terror and the afterlife of slavery during the Great Migration. All of us who stand on humanity's freedom side can and should remember and honor all of it the long history of stolen land and resources, genocide, oppression, and exploitation, as we pledge to work each day to keep our eyes and our hearts open in our shared struggle for peace and repair, justice and joy, balance and love. We're transmitting, as always, on the freedom frequency, calling on you to join us as we look uneasily into the world we've inherited and struggle toward a world that could be or should be but is not yet. Our first traditional feature is the quiet contemplation of a poem, our moment of Zen. We'll switch it up a little bit today, and it won't be exactly quiet. Let's listen to a version of a poem song that has inspired struggles for well over a century and still gets me on my feet every time. The song is the Internationale, words by a French anarchist in the 1860s and the melody composed by a French Marxist. I have versions in Arabic, Mandarin, Spanish, French. I have the song in reggae and heavy metal. But here's a bit from a version by the bold and lovely Billy Bragg. Stand up, all victims of oppression, for the tyrants be your might. Don't cling so hard to your possessions, for you have nothing if you have no Poisoned by 
Arise, ye prisoners of starvation. Arise, ye wretched of the earth. Another world is coming. A better world's in birth. Yes, our second regular feature is a free write. So pause the podcast for just a moment and write wildly. No need for edits or revisions in response to this prompt. Here are a few things, principles perhaps, or issues that we need to stand up for if we hope to join hands with other midwives of a better world. Okay, start writing. We'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. Welcome back. We're heading over to the dazzling and important Pilsen Community Books right now to talk with John Melrod author of Fighting Times. We had a couple of technical difficulties at the bookstore. My fault. I apologize for all the glitches and dropped audio. But stick with it. There's a lot here. So, John, thank you for being here. Thank you for hosting this. And thank you to Mandy. When I was trying to find a bookstore to speak at, I called up and she picked up the phone and said, I'm reading your book right now. Of course we want you to come. That's great. Yeah, that was really, that was great. Um, But I started writing the book in 2004 when I was diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer and only given six months to a year to live. And I told the surgeon, well, to step back a second, 
The surgeon directly pegged the cancer to my work in the factory with trichloroethylene and tanning solvents. That was on his diagnosis. And I, but I told him, I'm not going to die. I can't die because I have a seven and a 10 year old. And they said, well, Mr. Mauro, I put your affairs in order. We, you, you know, statistically, you've got six months to a year. And it's a long story. And if anybody's interested, it's on my website, jonathanmelrod.com, where I talk about how I used alternative medicine, how I used, you know, my mind and, and allopathic chemotherapy and what have you to, you know, to, to, to beat the cancer. But my kids started asking to work in dangerous factories that are now killing you. You know, I mean, couldn't you have done something like other parents who are, you know, accountants or lawyers or what have you. And I felt like I needed to start writing as much as I could so that if I did leave, which seemed like it was a good possibility, they'd have some sense of why I had been willing to devote myself to the work that I did, to the factories I worked in, which were really some of the the worst in Milwaukee after the FBI started uh, interfering with my work schedule. And um, so I, I started writing the book then. And the book is really, it's my memoir, but it really, really the essence of it unfolds when I go to work in 1972. I chose American Motors because... It was still a period of militancy. They, there had been, in 1969, there were 13 wildcat strikes, illegal strikes, in one week at the Milwaukee and the Kenosha plant. And I said, wow, this has got to be the place where I want to work. And Ruther had come into the New York Times pleading with, not Ruther, excuse me, um, yeah, Ruther went into the New York Times and he pled with the local to stop the troublemakers from wrecking American Motors, which had absolutely no impact whatsoever. And we still had at that factory the right to strike over all grievances or one to 35 to pay you for the lost time for the rest of the day. So it was a very unique situation that I found myself in where there was this legacy that still existed. And that legacy had a lot to do with our ability to organize it as successfully as we did. Um, sometimes people say, oh, my God, you accomplished so much when you were there. And the truth is that the, the environment, the union, as it had been, with its traditions that still existed, at one point I was elected to be department chairman. And each department had its own union meetings. And it was sort of the most basic level of democracy. So in one instance, a I came into work. I was just a steward at that point, And there was all these groups of young people, black and white. And they were like, John, John, did you hear what the chief said? What Gathings said to Kathy, who was one of the stewards that got elected on our slate. We had taken seven of the nine positions in the department. And I said, what, did, what happened? And they said, well, he told Kathy, she, he better not hear about her kissing a, an N-word person ever again. And it was an uproar. I mean, young people didn't want to be like their parents. And of course, black people 
were offended, but had always seen the union as being racist anyway. So being the department chairman, I put it on the agenda as the first item to discuss. And 70 or 80 people came out from the department and just raked the chief steward over the coals and basically was believe what you want in your head, but we don't want to hear you talk that on the shop floor. So we really had that kind of tradition that we were able to plug into and then expand through, you know, being on various committees like the education committee. I set up a seven-week labor school for 235 stewards and rank-and-file activists. And, you know, we were still able to have sit-downs and wildcats and, you know, the what combat unionism is really about. I mean, the diametrical opposite of business unionism, which is what I have when I on second. A lot of time working there, being fired, being disciplined. And at the end, when I left, there was an article in the paper that said Melrod 7, American Motors 0, because I had won seven cases in front of the labor board and American Motors had lost them all. Um, Perfect. Beautiful. So there's a, why don't you go ahead? I mean, there's a lot well, more to talk there's, about. There's a lot, and and I think that's a good introduction. Let's go back because John, you were um, a rebel in high school. You went to the University of Wisconsin at Madison, where you were very active and very militant in the anti-war movement. And I guess one of the things I'd like you to talk a little bit about, again, thinking about then and now, lessons for today. What were some of the challenges and to Milwaukee, I mean, lessons about co-optation or repression or, or importantly, sectarianism, dogmatism. What did you learn at Madison as a student radical that you could bring with you to the plant? Well, interestingly, Madison had been very non-sectarian, the SDS chapter, which was huge until the split in June of 69 of SDS, and people had to start lining up on various sides of that. But that sort of defined the character of Madison. When we organized, after they killed the four students that they were part of, and we were like the anti-imperialist contingent of a broad united front that included Campus Crusade for Christ. And I have a leaflet at home from the Campus Crusade for Christ telling you how to put your, your mask on when they shoot CS gas to keep it in vinegar and water or whatever it was. And I said, boy, this is really a broad united front. You know, and the frat kids had all come over to participate because SDS, and this is one of the key lessons that I learned, was that we believed in organization and organizing. If you were a campus organizer, as opposed to a community organizer or in the women's movement, you had to go into the dorms two or three nights a week, and you banged on doors and you talked about, this is the Vietnam War, this is the history of it, the French got defeated in Dien Bien Phu in 1954, the U.S. has stepped into as a colonial power to try and continue that war. And so we had so many, when, when it came time for kids to come out, we were just, we'd be amazed sometimes at the number of kids that would come out. The best example to me, and this is really important, was there was a black student strike in 1969, and there were only 500 black students in the university of 30,000 people. And they had been bargaining for years to try and get greater enrollment of black students, ethnic studies, black professors, et cetera. And finally, they called a, a strike, which, you know, SDS immediately came to the forefront of, you know, helping to lead. 
And we had really laid a groundwork. We were doing our work in the dorms before the black student strike, educating people to the 13 demands, why this was right. When, when we called a march at the peak of the strike, 10,000 people, according to the newspaper capital, almost all of the 10,000 were white. So when you talk about this critical race theory nonsense, you know, it's not inherent to people to be racist by any means. That was a third of the student body were willing to stand up and lose, you know, lose their educations. And there's this sort of there's a sort of uh, reaction to, you know, this is going to be ultra democratic and everybody can talk. And everybody's got to vote and everybody has to be in consensus. Well, that's not always possible when you're in the middle of a struggle. And, you know, I believe, as we did then, that you have to develop forms of organization that can last and carry through from an ebb and a flow and an ebb and a flow. And I think we're seriously lacking in that. You just said um, this critical race theory nonsense. What did that mean? What do you mean by that? Well, I don't really know what it means. No, I'm saying you said the word critical race theory nonsense. Well, what did you mean? I, I meant that that's what all of these uh, people like uh, the governor of Florida, right, you right. know, mouth critical the race theory right. as if it's a buzz. They were white kids. Um, you know, but white kids supported when I was, you know, White kids supported the black student strike, is my point. Yeah, I understood that. But but it's also true that we have a long, 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 tired and exhausting history of um, uh, and a base, a real base for white supremacy among masses of people. How do you understand that? And how do we overcome yeah. it? No, that's, I mean, I, don't, don't take me to mean that I disagree with the teaching of critical race theory. You know, it's it's the way that they've sort of bastardized it. Demonized it. Demonized yes, it to right. make a cultural to make a cultural statement out of it. Right. Um what was the question? Well what what I'm what I'm getting at is that we have a a long and serious oh. and deep history of white supremacy yeah. and of things like lots and lots of working class people supporting um Trump and supporting the MAGA movement. How do you explain that and how do you counter it? Yeah. That's Really an important question, because when we formed a caucus in Kenosha at the American Motors plant, one was the fight against white supremacy and racism, both in the union and in the shop and in society. And the other was the oppression of women and male chauvinism. And every issue, we monthly put out this newsletter that it grew into an institution. There used to be 20 or 30 people handing it out at the gates whenever we put it out, all wearing United Workers Caucus jackets. We, they all felt that we're part of a rebel movement of some sort. I mean, that's defined in different ways, but this defines us as a rebel. I mean, when it came to May Day, there were a couple hundred people that always wore the May Day button. That defined them as being part of that movement we had created. So, you know, there wasn't an incident of racism that we heard about that we didn't take up the struggle around. When I heard that they had just fired a black Vietnam vet in the final in the uh, final trim department, I immediately went over there because I could go where I wanted as a chief steward. We, we got a petition going, signed by all the white workers in the area, and we then called a strike vote for his job. Mm -hmm. And that was white workers as well as black workers. And that was always what we did, whether it was graffiti on the wall and we'd start a mass petition against graffiti, you know, racist, really racist 
it's in the book, but I can't remember. But it says, yeah, we're all slaves, but the N-words, they deserve it. We don't. Um, so, you know, we always took that on, including when we went to Tupelo, Mississippi, where the United League, a black organization, had called for a march against the Klan. And we leafleted the whole plant. And there were a lot of rural people. I mean, this was, you know, Kenosha was one of those plants where guys work on the farm in the day, and then at night they come in and they work in the plant. And But we just went straight at it and handed out a leaflet to everyone, how the Klan has been anti-union, how the Klan is oppressed and held down black people. And we got a busload of people to go down to Tupelo. Um, There's a picture in the book. The bus pulls up, and I look up at the building, and it's Tupelo Police Department, and out marched 20 Klansmen in their hoods carrying axe handles. And I'm like, shit. Who do you call if they attack you? The police or the Klan and the Klan are the police. You know, luckily, at that point, black Vietnam veterans had come back and they weren't going to take any shit. So the front of our march was a pickup truck loaded with their weapons so that it was like a nuclear standoff thing. You can attack us and we'll attack you, you know, but, you know, understand we're armed and we will fight back. You know, the, the, the stories in the book and your stories tonight are admirable in terms of taking on racism, uh, white supremacy on the campus, in the community, um, getting folks mobilized to and, and in the factory, on the shop floor. But still, when we come to trying to think strategically how to, as a social movement that's still very active, in other words, another way of saying it is, if you think about the goals that you and I shared 50 years ago, um, you know, we didn't end war. We didn't end apartheid in the United States. We didn't end white supremacy. And I think in some sense, that was very much what we wanted to do. Now, I'm not saying we didn't make, in terms of the, sure, what's next? What now? Wow, that's off topic. Um, No. Is it? No, 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 it's not off topic at all. It's off topic for my usual, my usual, what I run through. But, um, but, but I'm kind of, one of the things that, that, you know, we don't get to the end of the book and say, here's what we need to do around race, for example. And we still see lots and lots of white workers joining things like the Trump movement. Why is that? And what do we do about it? I really believe as bankrupt as many of the unions are, um, particularly those that are like straight up business unions, a lot of this in Kenosha, for instance, where written written house came in with the AK. Yeah, not the AK, exactly. Uh, the um, AR-15. Yeah, AR-15. Um, that wouldn't have happened had we had the factory been up and had the union been organized. The union would have been out there leading the march. And that's a big difference. I mean, all through Wisconsin. In Milwaukee, the unions had given black paying jobs and a sense of organization in the union. So when the union at A.O. Smith, which made parts for for um, car frames, called for a rally to demand that Martin Luther King become a national day off, we brought up a busload of people from Kenosha and local, the national holiday, and, you know, explained what the importance of winning this was, what Martin Luther King had done, who he had tried to unite in Memphis, um, and... You know, I mean, it was, 
I think with us, it was just, it was just a constant, constant, never giving up that aspect of the struggle, no matter whether it was tough to do. Like after I went down to Mississippi, I was sitting in a bar and I felt something in my stomach and I looked down and it was a 38. And the guy next to me says, hey, I'm Deadeye Di Marino and I'm in the White People's Socialist Nationalist Party or whatever. I'm a Nazi. And you're that Jewish commie that passes out fighting times. And I was like, whoa, um, not a good situation at the moment. And um, so I said to the bartender, Midori, double shots, did those. Midori, double shots, we did those. So, you know, I said, look, Deadeye, when you, when you, in the trucking department, when your steward got fired, who put out the flyer demanding that everybody support your work stoppage? It was fighting times, wasn't it? Yeah, I don't mind that. I get that, you know? And, you know, what about when we did this, this, and that? He says, yeah, yeah, I, I get all that. And then by the, about the fifth double shot round, he's hugging me and saying, you're my union brother, you know? And after that, he wasn't handing out fighting times, but he'd always give me a nod as he came in, you know? Um, so, you know, when Hillary Clinton called the basket of deplorables, you know, she's talking about those guys, you know, that we worked with that, you know, do and can be changed. Um, my, if I could give one last example of that, because I think it's so apropos when I went, when I was fired, I had to go to work in a steel fabrication plant and it was like the weakest union I had, I had been around at that time. And it was mostly on second shift white guys who were muscle car guys, you know, um, you know, big cars with big tires and they were redneck. They had all been in juvie, in juvenile hall, you know, and in juvenile hall, it broke that broke down blacks, whites and native Americans and Latinos. Those were the three gangs that were constantly at war. So when I started hanging out with these guys and they started talking about, you know, and we're this, and this guy's a fucking this and that. I said, hey, I don't want to hear it. You know what I mean? I don't want to hear it because that's just KKK racist bullshit. And they said, yeah, well, you've never been in juvie where you had a fight every other day. So I said, I got I to gotta figure out how to work with these guys. So I, we called a caucus meeting. Nobody came because nobody left the bar. So I said, okay, that doesn't work. So we'll call the caucus meeting when the bar closes. Then we'll drink at Eyebolt's house, another one of the guys who worked there. And at Eyebolt's house, then we'll get up in Leaflet in the morning. So nobody went to bed but me. So the morning comes, guys handing out the leaf to Wild Man's shirt. And I said, well, that's not really the way we win people over. You know, we can be a little, you know, a little easier going than that. But the, we went on strike. And all of a sudden, this caucus blooms. You know, no, the leadership isn't leading the strike. They're not, they're not anywhere to be found. So we're organizing people to get food stamps. We, we pledge that if anybody's evicted or, or they're evicted or their house is repossessed, we will be there to move them back in. And all of a sudden, when the, when the international tried to divide the young and old by only taking away our $25 a week strike pay, everyone's strike benefits. So the point of the story is, I bolt who had a cherry red Trans Am, got it repossessed because he didn't have enough money to keep his payments up. And everybody was demoralized. And I said, okay, what do you do to, you know, turn this around in this situation? Go pick it, GMAC, General Motors Auto, that's their finance company. 
and tell him we're going to get Eibold's car back. So we call for this picket line, and this is great. And 15 black meat cutters show up on the picket line with us to get Eibold's car back. And the guys I'm with are like looking over like, you know, how, how'd they get out of the ghetto to West Dallas, which is like a, a white working class suburb. Anyway, we go into the manager's office. There's three of us. Hey, we want Eibold's keys back. No, the judge took his car away. No, we want his keys back. And I said, look, let me tell you, two minutes, keys go back or all those people outside come in here and they don't leave until we have his keys. So he gave us the keys back, which was a morale boost for everybody on the picket lines, no matter what age they were. And the next week, all these same white guys that had talked racist shit forever, we all went to join the meat cutters picket line because they were breaking the meat cutters strike. And they were all, I could see the trepidation in their faces at first, but they went there and they participated in blocking scabs and fighting with the cops. And interestingly enough, I was looking through my old photos and every May Day, I noticed that they were there after I went back to the auto plant. They were still coming to May Day rallies. So, I mean, to me, that was just this incredible turnaround, you know. You know, there's a lot of hopeful stories going way back to when you were in the plant and and even more recently after the murder, the state assassination of George Floyd, 26 million people marched against racism, more than we've ever seen ever in our history. So there are reasons to hope. But thinking back to some of the stories, would you characterize your approach as black and white unite and fight? No, it was, it was a little more subtle. We, we looked at the black struggle as something that we had to focus on. We did call for people to unite, but we were very attuned and a black guy. And the guy who was, had the job, which was a single guy, was off sick. So they put a black guy and a white guy there. Well, the black guy got the job of trying to maneuver the motor, and it kept smashing into him. And the, the foreman comes over, and he disciplines him, three-day penalty for poor workmanship. Well, we put it out straight up. There's a white guy, there's a black guy. There shouldn't be two guys on the job, but there are. And it's, you know, just white racism on the company's part. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we beat the discipline. Right. But we every incident like that, after, you know, after year, after year, after year, um, you know, things... We, we At our first Martin Luther King Day celebration, there were 800 people at the Union Hall the very first year that we did it. Um, and at that, we brought up the death of Jerry Brookshire, who was a young black kid who the Milwaukee Tactical Squad had killed. And we brought that in, and the, the custodian came up to us afterward. He said, hey, come here. He says, you guys snuck a communist in here. You know, um, it was somebody from the Revolutionary Union. And, you know, he was sophisticated enough to know that it... You know, I find it interesting when I ask the question, what now, what's next? Um, two, two quick things. One is that I think about 20 years ago, Cedric Robinson popularized the notion of racial capitalism, that capitalism isn't some universal universal class, but from the beginning, race has been baked into the capitalist project and in America. So this has become popularized and the black the movement for black lives has taken it up, the phrase racial capitalism, as an explanation for the system we live in. Does that resonate with you? 
Well, I've never been asked that question. Um, but just on the surface, it seems to me to be very true. Yeah, um, I agree. You know, and if, I mean, you know, you go back, I mean, you can go all the way back to slavery where, you know, through cotton, they generated the capital for the North to develop. And, you know, slavery never, I mean, slavery and the vestiges of slavery never left. The afterlife of slavery is very much with us. That's right. And when they defeated Reconstruction, the slight glimmer of hope was destroyed at that point. Um, so, you know, that seems to be true. And, and you know, I mean, but there are so many examples. I don't know if anybody, people have read the book on the um, FE, um, Tony Gitlin, uh, Long Deep Struggle. I thought it was an unbelievable, the best labor book I had read because of what the FE's position was on fighting organized and, you know, where it, whites were not integrated with blacks by any means. It's a great book. You know, in Chicago, I mean, we're at a moment where we've elected probably the most progressive mayor that's ever been elected in this city. Um, and I, I'm shifting gears, but I'd be interested in your take on the link between organizing and mobilizing people, organizing workers, organizing students, and um, electoral politics. How do those things work together, in your view? Well, if I can answer it in a little different twist, in the United Auto Workers, where we led out of our local in 1983, we led the movement for one member, one vote. And it had been. It was very from the bottom up. All the big locals that had taken concessions were furious at the international, so they supported the movement for one member. One member who was president of the UAW at the time said to the press, We've, "I've never had a fight as tough as this one, you know, as these guys put up." But now there's because twelve of the top leaders of the UAW were embezzling, were corrupt. They're in jail um, for decent amount of time, 10, 12 years, what have you. And so there's this reform leadership that got elected. Mm -hmm. And everybody's really excited about it. And I went to a labor notes conference two weekends ago, and I spoke to people from the UAW. I said, I think you got to hold your excitement. You, we opened a door. The GM contract and the Ford contract and the Chrysler contract are going to be so different in September. I wouldn't count on that because there is no rank and file movement out there to make that a success. So I think the same would be applicable to me into electoral politics. I, I agree. I mean, I think you you walk toward fundamental change on two legs. And the leg that we understand and have to be a part of is the mobilizing and organizing of masses of people. But there's real politics also involved. But without the mobilizing and organizing of masses of people, we go nowhere. And so I think that it's real. So I, we're at a moment because the new mayor has not taken office. And some people who are very caught up in the election have been saying to me more or less without being this ridiculous, you know, the potholes are going to fill themselves now that the progressive is elected. Well, that's not true and it's not possible. So the question is, how do we continue to mobilize and organize? Where my wife, Maria Isabel Lopez, and I are both politically active. And what they call it is there's parliament, you know, their legislature, and then there's the parliament of the streets. Exactly. And if they don't go together... One or the other, you know, I mean, they, they feed on each other. It's a beautiful way to put it. And if people f think 
you know, electing this person or that person will save us, whether the, the savior is Obama or Bernie or whoever, it's a huge mistake because it's the parliament of the street that we have access to. And, you know, we don't have access really to that medieval uh, auction block called the, called the Congress um, and so on. Uh, I want to shift gears one more time and then open it up. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about writing. Um, you talked a bit in the beginning about what motivated you to write three of them. And um, I think there's something uh, to say, here's a story worth thinking about. But I wonder how you wrestled with the question of tone and wrestled with the question of of the I character versus the wiser narrator and so on. How, how did you think about your writing and your writing process? Well, really, I didn't think about it. You just did it. To be perfectly honest. <laughs> I mean, COVID came. And so I said, okay, this is my chance to finish the book. Great. So you could ask Isabel, for three years, from nine to five, seven days a week, I worked on the memoir. And I had boxes of every flyer we had ever put out, That's every beautiful. steward election I had been in, every department meeting I had held, you know, had chaired. So it was like just sort of melding that all together and trying to remember back what I felt like at the time. You know, like when I was organizing the first black guy in Milwaukee into the caucus and I went over his house and he had Das Kapital. You know what I mean? And I'm like, whoa, you know, hey, Roby, where'd you get Das Kapital? Oh, when I came back from Nam, some brothers on the base had a study group, you know, and you kind of realize there's a lot more depth all around you. Um, You know, I want to just underline one thing, because we were talking before we began with folks who are writers and writing uh, their own stories. But I want to underline something you said, which is you worked from nine to five. My son, who's an my oldest son, who's an elegant writer, uh, describes writing as strapping yourself into your chair, not moving and bleeding on the computer. Um, The point being that it's not always fun. But there is something that I think of as the discipline of the desk. And what you just described is the discipline of the desk. You have to put words on the page. Imagine putting words on a page, a page a a day. At the end of the year, you have 365 pages. Most of it is shit. That's understood. But at least you have something to work with. Without words on the page, you've got got good intentions. So I admire your your discipline of the desk and, and getting that done. But then you also have the discipline of the heart, which clearly you have. You have a passion for this. And then the discipline of the head involves looking in those boxes and sorting through those files to, to memorial. And Starbucks had struck. So we got out and we joined them. <laughs> and they were like, they were going to come tonight, but I didn't think they'd have the, you know, be able to get up and explain. Because one of the women, Lily, had been there five years and had just been fired, which is what they're doing now is firing yeah. the long-term, you know, employees who are behind the union. But, you know, there's a new life out there that's, you know, after the UC strike in California, kids are all talking about unions and strikes. And, you know, I mean, you've got an opening that we haven't had for a very long time. It's true. It's a very exciting time. But I'm so glad you went to the Haymarket Memorial because that is a beautiful example of kind of, uh, you know, what was there for many years was a a cop with his hand up saying, in the name of the state of Illinois, I command stuff. He got blown up twice and run over by a streetcar once. So, you know, um, anyway, we're going to open it up. So let's begin with you. Yes. Yeah. Uh, howdy. Uh, my name is Liz. I run the SDS chapter over at our UIC now, actually. Thank you for coming out on the picket lines, by the way. You're welcome. Uh, and I wanted to ask 
there were some SDSers down in Florida who are currently going into UPS. Uh, we cannot agree more that the way to get things done is moving into industry, moving into the South. But I'm kind of curious. Uh, you came from, you know, a, a DC background, a relatively, uh, I don't know bit how you would describe it class-wise, but like a very different class background than a lot of the people who were in that factory. How did you overcome uh, like cultural baggage you might have brought from that and like unite socially, you know, not just politically or, you know, economically? You know, that's a question I really get asked a lot. And the answer was, I just acted like a normal person. <laughs> I mean, you know, I wasn't, you know, out at the gate saying, you know, you've got to wear a, a red star. Um, or, <laughs> yeah, I'm pointing. No, 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 seriously, I wasn't out at the gate saying that. But I mean, I really focused on integrating myself. I mean, every night, you know, I'd be at somebody's house. Every day after work, I'd be at the bar. I joined the song, and, you know, I was on the bowling league, which I didn't have to bowl. But, but you know, you've got to really be, be you know, part of, part of what's going on because people's lives extend clearly out of the workplace. Um, so, and it's, it's interesting because I would often say to people, well, I learned this reading in college when I met, mastered in labor history. And everybody would just go, you know. So I, I think it was that I was kind of normal and a heavy drinker might have helped. <laughs> uh, we're going to take one more question and then we're going to keep the conversation going, but we're going to end the formal part. Yes, in the back. Hi. Um, so uh, I'm a community organizer with the Filipino uh, migrants. And in the Gulf of Mexico, there are seasonal Filipino migrants that are legally here in the U.S., but they are kept like human traffic victims. So sometime in uh, 2012, there's a couple of them who escaped just before the explosion uh, at the oil rig. And the ones who helped them were the, their fellow American workers to escape and seek uh, re uh, refuge or justice with a traffic, trafficking visa for their immigration um, status. Then later on, lately, we have the Verizon strike, and because of the support of the Filipinos in the Philippines in the calling center, that's how they won their strike here in the U.S., because they did not allow themselves in the Philippines to become scabs, you know. So I also see you a lot in the Philippines uh, with the KMU, with the, the Federation, uh, every May 1st. Most of the makers, actually, when you already got engaged with Isabel, I think. <laughs> so that's a connection. So I would like to hear your reflections on the, the role of international solidarity. Yeah. Well, one thing is, I'd like either you or Isabel just to announce the movie tomorrow. Um, we have a film showing tomorrow about the, um, it's called uh, Drawing Her Final Arrow. It's a story about the, the first uh, female chick teen. Um, she's an um, indigenous uh, person and the leader of the Manobo tribe. And she was fighting about her um, to defend her ancestral lands. And our location is tomorrow. And maybe Nerissa can announce the location tomorrow. It's actually the Camp 48 War. After the 185 years of the city 
city of Chicago is a city council. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's going to be tomorrow at uh, 5 p.m. Perfect. Thank you. Let me, just add, let me just add one little thing. I mean, this woman, it's really worth seeing because I never met anybody so courageous in my life. You know, she's got to be 80 or 90. I don't know. But, you know, and the military is looking for her because she made too many traps with the bamboo things and they're falling in and dying. Um, but she she said, you people said, you can't go back to Mindanao. The army is looking for you. She says, just let me get my bow and arrow and I'll fucking fight him. You know, I mean, it's really a trip. <laughs> and she's very serious, by the way. And, and let me amplify what you said. I think we cannot. And this has always oh, oh, been true. Yeah, this has always been true, that we cannot build a successful revolutionary movement in the United States if we don't understand internationalism and our responsibility to be, in, to be united with the people who are the victims of our own imperialism. And so I appreciate your raising that. And, uh, and today, that includes, that includes, yes, the Philippines, yes, um, Latin America, and very pointedly, it includes Palestine. And just as South Africa... At one point, Vietnam at one point. Today, if you are building revolutionary movement in this country, Palestine has to be front and center. So I want to just say two quick things. What's the street address? Oh, the address is 1129 West Bryn Mawr. Bryn on the north side. Thank you for bringing that up. I want to... Um, I want to repeat something I said in the beginning. This is an independent bookstore. It relies on folks like you who believe in books and reading and deep study. I want you all to buy two copies now of Fighting Times, now that you've heard more about it. One for you, one for a friend. John will sign it. Then buy another book, which John will also sign. He'll, he'll sign Moby Dick, as I said. Um, but I want to thank you all for coming, and please join me in thanking John Melrod for this book and for being thank here. You. That's the perfect way to end. Go ahead. Pick it up. You know, that's important that you sang that because my first experience was workers when we went to Manchester, New Hampshire in 67 to shut the induction center. And they all had banners, better dead than red, commies go home. You know, and then, and then in Wisconsin, I was working on the great boycott and, and we were organizing a farm workers union and the steel workers voted to come join the picket line yeah, and when they when they marched in and they loaded up their carts and they had ice cream and it was melting, then they walked out and they were singing and the line that said, we can bring to birth a new world from the ashes of the old. I said, yeah, that's really radical. So make your life a fighting time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, folks. Let's give thanks that we're alive and dancing the dialectic at this precise moment on the clock of the universe, the only moment we have. Let's look unblinkingly at the society as it is, and let's take responsibility to build projects that reimagine, repair, and rebuild this broken world. Let's stay all the way human. Thanks to Damon Williams and Daniel Kisslinger and their generative and provocative podcast, Ergo to co-conspirators Roxana Espos, Light Ali, and Palace Shaw. Go forward, keep rising, and make your brief time in the light a fighting time. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time.